Funny, isn't it? How sometimes the smallest actions, the smallest gestures can have enormous consequences. Think of it. You ask a couple, how'd you meet? How'd you fall in love? And maybe it was just a smile. Maybe it was just being in the right place at the right time. Just the smallest action, enormous consequences. You think of why did you go to the school you went to? Why'd you take the job you took? Why'd you end up in the military? Why'd you do what you do? And sometimes it's just the smallest reasons, the smallest things, and then it sets the course of your life. Enormous consequences. A Hebrew baby boy would be born in the vast land of Egypt. Just a small thing. But as Pharaoh would soon find out, it would have enormous consequences because God would use this baby boy, just the birth of a child, to become the deliverer for the Hebrew people. A small thing with enormous consequences. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? All the other Hebrew baby boys were being thrown into the Nile. What if just one lived? What could possibly go wrong? Well, let's jump into the story this week, shall we? It's Exodus chapter 2. We'll begin in verses 1 through 10, and we'll continue to see how hope begins with a burden. Exodus 2, 1 through 10, it reads, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from among the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Things were bad in Egypt. I mean, you remember from last week, things were really bad because Pharaoh, he was fearful. And so that fear festered into all kinds of brutality. I mean, the first thing he did is he made all the Hebrews slaves. And he the, just the oppression, the brutality with which he treated these people, he thought would just kind of crush their spirits. But the Hebrews, they were a resilient bunch. They continued to multiply. And so Pharaoh had to go into phase two. And phase two was trying to enlist the help of the Hebrew midwives to get rid of all the Hebrew baby boys. Well, these midwives, these young women, they take a stand for life and they refuse the mighty Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And so Pharaoh launches into the third phase of his extermination plan and it was the worst. It was just throwing the baby boys to the Nile, into the Nile River so they would sink or be eaten by crocodiles. I mean, these were brutal times. It was incredibly difficult. 
Now the question came, how come Pharaoh just focused on the Hebrew baby boys? Why didn't he do the same thing with the baby girls? Well, the reason is, is, is Pharaoh, he's wanting just to crush the Hebrew people. He, he's wanting them to become powerless, for them to lose their name, and for them to lose any kind of hope of rebuilding their people, their, their nation. And so he focuses on the boys because then the, the women would grow up. They would have no men to marry. They would have to intermarry with the Egyptians. The, they, the Hebrews would be a powerless people. And in marrying the Egyptians, well, they would lose their name. And the Hebrew pe- people eventually, well, they would be just lost into the mess of history. And so this is the plan of Pharaoh. And it is with this backdrop which Moses is born into. And so when Moses is born, well, his parents, they're burdened because they see their precious baby boy. They know this is a fine child. This is a, he's such a handsome boy. And, and you know the heart of a parent. And they know what's being done to all the Hebrew baby boys. And so they launch into this plan that, because they have a burden that their son would live. Now, it's important to note that all the Hebrews would have had that kind of burden for their sons. It's not like that Moses' parents were, were special or that they had a burden and no one else did. No, they all would have. It's just that this is how it happened for Moses. This is how this family's faith uh, worked out. And so Moses' mother, she first begins with a basket. And she prepares this basket and, and she coats it with bitumen so that the uh, bitumen was a plant that was believed to repel the crocodiles and she she makes it with pitch so that it would be watertight and it wouldn't sink to the bottom and so she finds just the right place and just the right time to put Moses in the basket and so we know from archaeology that the daughters of Pharaoh, that they would have had their own like housing unit once they reached a certain age. And the housing unit, it was placed, it was built right by the Nile River. Because the Nile, they believed, the god of the Nile was also a god of fertility. And so the daughters of Pharaoh, they would go and they would bathe in the Nile so that uh, they would become fertile. And when they would get married, they could have lots of babies. And this is also why the Egyptians would have gone along with this practice. I mean, Pharaoh turned to religion and twisted religion in order to get the Egyptians to go along with throwing the baby boys, the Hebrew boys, into the Nile River. And another, another part of that is that, well, the Egyptians would just simply think, okay, if we offer these babies, the Hebrew babies, into the Nile, well, then the Nile God, they're going to think well of us and we'll become more fertile. And so this is how twisted that Pharaoh is going to use religion here. And so it is the right place. It's the Nile River, and it's also the right time. I mean, just at the right time when Pharaoh's daughter, this princess, would go down to bathe. Now, this isn't the type of bath where you grab a bar of soap and you just give a good scrub from head to toe. It's not that kind of bath at all. It is a religious ritual bath, okay? I mean, as the daughter of Pharaoh, she would have had marble-encased tubs where her attendants would attend to her and and scrub her for her. I mean, this is the kind of uh, luxury that she would have lived. But this type of bath, it is a religious ritual bath. She's preparing to be a mom. 
And so here she is, this Egyptian princess, going under this ritual bath, this fertility bath, preparing to be a mom, and probably the only person in all of the Egyptian empire who could override the edict of Pharaoh. And so here she is, and don't think for a moment that Moses' parents hadn't considered all of this. I mean, they had probably worked this plan out. They had three months, you know, before Moses just got too big, too loud. They couldn't hide him anymore. And they had thought it through, and they knew just the right time that Pharaoh's daughter would be there. Just the right time, just the right place where Moses could end up right in the arms of the princess. And so... She's there. She's going through her ritual bath. She has her attendants by the shoreline, scoping out any alligators or crocodiles, making sure it's a safe place. And then she hears the baby crying. She hears Moses. She has one of her attendants go grab the basket. She opens the basket, and there's Moses crying. You know, I don't think this is the type of cry that irritates. I think this is that kind of little whimper that brings sympathy. You know the difference, don't you? Just that irritating fit where you just want the child to be quiet. And just the little tears of a baby that you just can't turn away from. And so as as the princess lifts the lid and she sees this beautiful baby boy and she hears those little whimpers, well, it's as if at that moment God brings together the heart of a woman and the tears of a child and she finds this little Hebrew baby boy irresistible. I mean, she can't turn away from him. But Moses' parents, oh, they're not taking anything for granted. And so they station their daughter, probably only about eight years old at the time, right there for this whole thing. She's been watching. She's been scoping out. She's been waiting for the moment. And as soon as the princess has Moses in her arms, then Moses' older sister runs over and says, Hey, would you like me to find a, a Hebrew woman who could nurse this baby for you? I mean, she didn't even give the princess time to think. She was right there, ready to pounce, ready for action. And don't think that was a coincidence. I mean, you must know that, that Moses' parents would have coached his older sister time and time again. Okay, these are your lines. This is how you have to deliver it to the princess. And if she says this, you say that. If she says that, you say this. They would have coached this little eight-year-old girl time and time again. This is how you have to respond. This is the words you have to say. And so as all this is taking place, you can imagine that his parents are back in their little hut praying, hoping that this, their little daughter would deliver the lines just right, just the right words, and that the princess would hear them and respond. And so then when they see their daughter running to the hut, oh, how their hearts must have leapt within them. They must have been so excited. And here comes their little daughter. Mom, come quick. The princess will meet you. And so sure enough, she brings her mother to the princess and the princess says, take this child for me and nurse him for the next few years and I will pay you your wages. And so here's Moses' mother getting to nurse her own child and getting paid to do it. How would you like that? Mom's getting paid to nurse your own child. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Well, the most important thing was Moses was alive. Their plan had worked. He wasn't just thrown into the Nile with all the other baby boys. Moses was alive. And so Moses' mom, she would have nursed nursed Moses probably for three to four years. And then at that time, that whole time, she would have known that the day was coming when she was going to have to give her son to the princess. 
And soon enough, that day does arrive. Moses' parents do have to return their son to the princess. And it's interesting, it is the princess who will name Moses. She says, I will name you Moses because I drew you out of the water. Now, it's interesting to note in these first 10 verses, no names are mentioned. I mean, everybody is nameless until you get to the point where the princess names Moses. I mean, we don't know the names of Moses' parents. We don't know the names of Moses' sister. We don't know the names of the Egyptian princess. I mean, we'll find out a lot of those names later and from extra biblical sources, the name of the Egyptian princess. But none of those are given in Exodus 2 verses 1 through 10 because it is as if God is just focusing us in on the fact that he's the primary actor, that he's the one behind the scenes pulling the strings. He's the one making things happen. His plan, his plan to deliver the Hebrews out of Egypt is coming to pass. And it's starting with just this little baby boy, just the smallest thing, but will lead to enormous consequences. And so here is God at work. And He's going to use a lot. I mean, the focus isn't on Moses' mom and her love for her son. It's not on her faith in action. It's, it's not on his sister and this little girl who delivers her lines just right. It's not on the heart of the Egyptian princess. It's on God that he is working in ways that, you know, most people don't always see. God is at work. So we know from the book of Acts that Moses would have spent the first 40 years of his life growing up in the Egyptian palace. And growing up in the Egyptian palace, I mean, he would have been afforded the finest education. He would have been schooled in the laws of the land. He would have also been trained to be a military leader, to lead Egyptian armies. He would have had servants who attended to him. I mean, Moses was raised in the palace and he would have known that he was really somebody. On top of all that, Moses' first three to four years, remember, he was nursed by his mother. He would have lived with his mom and his dad. And you can imagine during those three to four years, oh, how they must have whispered over him and told him time and time again, Moses, you're a Hebrew, not an Egyptian. Don't forget who you are, Moses. God has protected you for a reason, Moses. He's got great plans for you, Moses. Oh, they they must have prayed over him time and time again. Lord, always cause him to remember that he is a Hebrew. You know, parents, I tell you all the time, you've got to be involved in your child's life. You've got to be whispering to them and praying over them just the way Moses' parents were to him. I mean, if you will not tell your child who they are and who God is... Just like the Egyptians, the world will step in and they'll be happy to tell them who they are and who God is. And the world always gets it wrong. And so you've got to be involved in their spiritual development. You've got to be involved in their educational life, their social life, their extracurricular life. You've got to press in. You've got to be involved. Because if you're not, oh, the world will step in and the world always gets it wrong. And so you've got to have a plan. How am I going to develop my child to grow up, to know who they are and who God is and who they're made to be? And so it starts by just getting together and say, you know what, here's what we need to focus on from birth to four. Like during these ages, let's really make sure that our child can see what a loving, godly family looks like. And so you lay this foundation of what a biblical, godly family ought to look like. And then from ages five through eight, oh, you're going to focus in on laying a healthy biblical foundation so that they can understand the meta narrative of scripture. 
Oh, they might not be able to explain everything and what it all means, but they can at least tell you the story. They understand the big story of Scripture where they can walk through creation and then the fall and the flood and the the nations, the Tower of Babel, and, and tell you about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and the Passover and the law and on and on and on through the book of Revelation so that they understand the big picture of Scripture. You're laying this gospel foundation. And then from 9 to 13, you're building upon that because now you're focusing in on who they are. Hey, you've got all these changes in your bodies, and you know what? God has specifically designed your body with a purpose. This is who you are, that you're made with this intrinsic value. And so that they understand the value they're worth, God's plan for purity, and that they have a healthy biblical identity, and that they're also able to have a healthy respect for others. And then from ages 14 to 18, well, you're pressing in and you're focusing in on helping them discover their spiritual gifts. You know, during these years, there's a lot of years when parents kind of pull back. You got to press in all the more. You got to be involved with them. This is when you go on mission trips with them and you serve together so that they can say, hey, this is how I'm gifted. This is what fires me up. This is how I can make a difference in God's kingdom. You're preparing them to live their legacy. All right. You're giving them a healthy understanding of of who they are. You're developing this sense of a God-given purpose. And so this is the plan where you walk through it and you say, okay, this is what you got to do. If you don't have a plan and you're just, well, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try that, you're basically just hoping that they turn out all right. And I know this is hard for a lot of us because maybe you didn't grow up with, with parents who had a plan. You didn't model this. You didn't understand that. You didn't see all this. Well, then I'm so happy that you're involved with Central because the leadership here, we'd love to come alongside you and help give you resources for each stage life development so that you can train your child so they will grow up with this healthy conviction of who they are and who God is. You know, Moses' parents, oh, they would have had a plan. Maybe they only got to invest in him for three or four years just at the little stages of his life. But you know what? Amazingly, Moses never forgot who he was. It's incredible. He never forgot who he was. I want you to see it. Exodus 2, 11 through 22 reads this. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike down your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. 
And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to his son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, by this time, a lot has happened in the life of Moses. I mean, you think about it. He grew up in an Egyptian palace. I mean, you've seen the pictures of ancient Egypt, all the massive pyramids of Giza, the Sphinx, all that. Moses would have grown up in that times. He would have seen all that, and he would have been afforded every luxury. I mean, he, he should have been in the slave shack. He should have been in the Nile. He trades all that for a palace. And he would have had attendants. He would have had a personal chef. He'd have had the whole bit. And we also know that Moses had accomplished quite a lot. I mean, from extra biblical sources, we believe that Moses led an Egyptian army in victory over Nubia, that today is modern-day Ethiopia. And so as Pharaoh was conquering the world at that time, Moses, he would have been in the middle of all of it. And if you look at Moses, you look and you say, look at this guy. I mean, he's got the education. He's got the life experience. He's got the, the training. He's got the skill. Look what he's accomplished. I mean, if anybody can lead the Hebrews, I mean, Moses is the guy. Mo Moses is the one you want as your leader. And not only did Moses have all that, he also had a burden for his people. And we know that hope begins with a burden. He never forgot that he was a Hebrew. He never forgot that he wasn't an Egyptian. And so one day Moses is out with his people and he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew. Now they would have had rods in those days that the taskmasters used and they would have inflicted a serious sting. And so you can imagine this Hebrew just receives this beating and he's laying on the ground just quivering in pain. And there is Moses in all of his royal garb, his royal robe, and all his regality. And he sees this happen, and something just burns within him, because he knows these slaves are my people. And so he just can't let this thing go undone. He looks this way, he looks that way, he looks all around, except he forgets to look up. And then in this moment, Moses takes things in his own hands. He rushes ahead of God's plan and he lashes out against the, against the Egyptian. He kills him, buries him, hides him in the sand. He thinks no, no one's looking. You know, Moses, he was prompted by his own flesh, his own timetable, his own rationale. His plan wasn't God's plan. And you know what? We can do the same thing, don't we? We do it all too often. No, maybe we don't kill somebody the way Moses did, but we come to a situation. We look at the circumstances. We look at the resources we have. We look at this. We look at this. We look at that. We look all around, except we don't look up. And we take things into our own hands. We, well, this will be best. This is what ought to happen. This is what I'll do. And we just assume it'll be best. And sometimes it works out. And then sometimes it doesn't. And like Moses, we, we feel that sting that Isaiah would later write about when he said, Oh, my thoughts are not your thoughts, God. My ways are not your ways. See, we've got to seek God's guidance. We've got to seek God's guidance in every area of our lives because our God is a God who wants to be involved. Oh, yeah, he cares about your diet, about your exercise, about your job, about your parenting, about your marriage, about every single detail of your life. He cares about it all. So we seek God's guidance for everything because he's involved in everything. He is Lord of all. Well, Moses didn't seek God's guidance. He just acted. He thought, 
hey, no, one, no one's going to know, and this needs to be done. Well, then the next day, Moses is out again thinking, hey, no one knows. And he sees two Hebrews arguing with each other, and he confronts the guy in the wrong. And the guy in the wrong says to Moses, hey, who made you a judge or king? Are you going to try to kill me just the way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And in that moment, Moses' heart sank, and he's filled with fear because he's wondering, how did word get out? How did they know? No one was supposed to know about this. And sure enough, word had gotten out. It spread rather quickly, and Pharaoh found out, and Pharaoh wanted Moses dead. So Moses had to go on the run. He fled to the wilderness of Midian. You see, by not seeking God's guidance, two consequences immediately happen to Moses' life. Instead of being accepted, he was rejected. Yeah, instead of being accepted by the Hebrews and, hey, oh, yes, this is our leader, this is our king, they look at him and they're afraid. Man, this guy just goes around killing people. Like, what's he going to do to us? This, this is scary dude. We don't want anything to do with him. And then Pharaoh, oh, instead of being accepted by Pharaoh, no, now Pharaoh wants him dead too. Why? He just killed an Egyptian taskmaster. The Egyptian taskmaster was just doing what Egyptian taskmasters do. And so now not only do the Hebrew people not want him, Pharaoh wants him dead and Moses has to run. Instead of being accepted, Moses was rejected. Number two, instead of being, becoming a leader, he became a fugitive. You see that? I mean, instead of being this leader who the Hebrews say, yeah, I want to follow that guy. Instead of being a leader of the Hebrew or the Egyptian armies that Moses, the Pharaoh is putting in charge. No, all of that is stripped away. He's, he's no longer a leader of anybody. He's just a fugitive. He has to go on the run. And he ends up in the wilderness of Midian. He meets a nice family there, family with seven daughters, great dad. He, he gets a job. Moses is going to become a shepherd. And this man, he's going to give one of his daughters to Moses to be his wife. Moses, he's going to have a son. Named him Gershom, which means I've been a wanderer in a foreign land. You know, you look at it and you say, well, life seemed to turn out okay for Moses. I mean, look, he's, he's got a nice family now. He's got a job. He's got a good relationship with his father-in-law. Everything seems to be going well in Midian, except Moses knew this isn't what he's made for. This isn't who he's supposed to be. I mean, and here it is, what should be one of the most joyous days of his life, the birth of his son. And he names his son, I've been a wanderer in a foreign land. You see the hurt, you see the burden in Moses' life. I mean, Mo Moses must have wondered, you know, by, by racing ahead of God's plan, by acting out so viciously against the Egyptian, did God simply forget about me? I mean, I believed at one point that God had a plan for my life, that I was really somebody, that great things were going to happen. But now, look at me. I'm, I'm nobody. I mean, well, what's God going to do with me now? I've, I've surely blown my shot of accomplishing anything in this life. And maybe that's you. Maybe you had dreams of these things you would do, of what you would accomplish, of what you would become. But you look back on some choices that you made and you blew it. You did things that you told yourself you'd never do and you ended up in your own Midian. Oh, maybe the life's not that bad. It's okay. It's, it's all right. It's just not what you dreamt it would be. And so you think, you know what? I think I've squandered my opportunity. I'll just have to be happy just in my little area right now. I don't think God has going to have much use for me after this. You know, one of the great things about the Moses narrative 
is it shows us that God, even when we blow it, he doesn't just discard us into the waistband of history. That God still has plans to use you. He still had plans to use Moses. He knows that he can take the broken, he can take the weary, he can take the burdened, and he can make them somebody. He can make a nobody into a somebody. He still wants to use you. You know, one of the reasons why Moses was going to be able to be of use to God is Moses still had a burden for his people. A burden. Something so small, so insignificant. But that burden would lead to enormous consequences because hope begins with a burden. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even when we've blown it, even when we've messed up, that you don't just forget about us, you don't just cast us away, but you still want to use us. So God, give us a burden for our community so that you can use us to bring hope because we understand that hope begins with a burden. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.